We are in a series here called Christ We Proclaim, and this is from Colossians chapter 1. In fact, the series wraps up tonight, but it's also, tonight's going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're joining us on Sunday mornings, glad you're here. Log into the chat and say hi. The title of our series comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. So for the final time, let's read this out loud together, everyone. Let me hear you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Just a couple moments, I'm going to read to us our text for tonight. It's the final part of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to bleed in to Colossians chapter 2. When we read it, you're going to get a sense of the richness of this text, of the writings of of Paul, and you're going to probably realize that it sounds a little bit familiar. Not necessarily that you've heard it word for word, but the format is absolutely recognizable because you're going to hear this, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a, a spoiler right now. It sounds like someone's last words. That's what it sounds like. So let me read it to you. This is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. It's a rather long text, but it's a good one. Here we go. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, now revealed to his saints. To them, to the saints, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And here's our verse. We just read it a minute ago. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. On to chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Congratulations. That was a long passage. Thanks for making it. So let's do a little review. Colossians, you know this, is one of Paul's letters from prison. It's a prison letter. And as he was writing this letter, he did not know what the outcome of his time would be in prison. Let me explain this a little bit and give you some insight into his incarceration. Let's talk about Roman prisons for just a minute. Roman prisons, a little bit different than American prisons. They weren't places for reform. You didn't send people to prison in hopes that they would change. They weren't places for punishment. You didn't send people there as a verdict for a crime. You didn't send people there in hopes that they would be rehabilitated. 
nor did a prison sentence fit a specific crime. Roman prisons were places to hold people while they awaited judgment. People were incarcerated before a trial, and if they were found guilty at the end of that incarceration, Rome had some specific punishments for people who were found guilty. They were either executed, that was possible, they were beaten, they were exiled, or they were fined. So those were the, the guilty verdicts, but rarely did people get a prison sentence for a guilty verdict of any trial. Now this is important because Paul's imprisonment here was an anticipatory position. He didn't quite know what was going to happen next. And that's really important to know. But he did know a few things here. First, we know this, and he knew this. He was chained. He had limited mobility. He says this at the end of Colossians. He was not under house arrest. He was in a large room because he was chained. And in that room, he was probably crowded with a lot of other prisoners awaiting trial. The room probably smelled awful. Rats were a pretty common sight. But Paul knew the drill. This was not the first time he had been imprisoned. In fact, he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that he had been imprisoned multiple times, which meant he had been put on trial multiple times. And even a few chapters later in 2 Corinthians, he wrote that he had been beaten three times before he ever wrote this. So at least three times he was put on trial, found guilty with a punishment of being beaten. So this moment recorded right here in Colossians is a little bit of an insight into Paul's life in prison. He was in jail, and he was in Ephesus in jail, and he was awaiting trial, where the verdict could be one of five things, right? Dismissal of all charges, innocent, exiled, fined, beaten, or executed. Now, let me put this into perspective, all right? He had a 20% chance of being executed, of being put to death. Now, 20% Chance of rain, for instance, non-issue, right? We hear that all the time. No big deal. A 20% chance of rain means you're not going to cancel your outdoor plans for that percentage. It's not even worth it. But, but that same number, 20%, becomes a lot more critical and a lot larger when it comes to your chances of being executed, right? So if someone tells you tomorrow that you have a 20% chance of being executed, you're going to take that seriously. That's going to be a little scary. You're going to take that much more seriously than a 20% chance of rain, I imagine. There's a real possibility when Paul wrote these words that he could have been put to death. And he lived that way and he wrote that way. So as far as he knew, at the moment he was writing these words, these were his last words. These were the last things he would ever write. There was no schedule for the imprisonment. There was no trial date. It was whenever they wanted to. So as far as he knew, this was it. And I want you to think about that. He wrote the prison letters, every prison letter he wrote, without any idea that he would ever write anything again. He just had no way of knowing this. Can you imagine the stress of that kind of situation? I mean, can you just imagine that, of writing or saying the last things you'll ever write or say? Now, we know from hindsight, it's not his last letter. His last letter is 2 Timothy. You need to go read that one. That's a great one. But he didn't know it at the time, and that's important to remember, which is why this section of Scripture has that familiar feel. Things could go very, very bad for Paul, and he wanted to get this right. Now, not all last words are as poignant as these, right? 
Not all of them are as poignant. The last words of Ludwig von Beethoven, by the way, 18th century composer, his last words were rather germane. He'd received a gift of 12 bottles of wine on his deathbed, and he looked at him and he said, pity, it's too late. It's too late. Or what about Doc Holliday's famous last words? The 19th century gunslinger stared at his feet. You probably remember this one. And he said, this is funny. This is funny. Nor are Paul's last words, or at least would-be last words, as regretful as Steve Jobs. You know who Steve Jobs is, right? The CEO of Apple, a billionaire when he died. And these, these, this, this one breaks my heart. And on his deathbed, his sister told this story in his eulogy. He looked and saw all his family standing around him. And he said the same two words three times. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There's a lot of regret in those words. It's just dripping. Paul's last words, or at least his would-be last words, the ones that we just read, they're perfect. And they are rich. And here's one. They give us an urgent, necessary, critical piece to the puzzle of life. They give us a template. They give us the way forward. If we were to imagine writing our last words, I think we would hope that they would be what Paul wrote right here. These are an aspiration of what we would write. Now listen, the next few minutes is not going to be dark. It's not going to be brooding. We're not talking about death tonight, but we are talking about life, about a life that can be lived while following Jesus, about a life that glorifies Jesus in everything, in every hope, in every dream, a life that can be lived in satisfaction and purpose. Because the way forward is a way without regrets. It's a life without regrets. And oh, that we could write these words as a testament to our own lives. So here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. I'm going to show you the way forward through Paul's writings here in three specific areas. So here's the first one. The first way forward here, a life without regret gives meaning to suffering. It gives meaning to suffering. Now, I'm going to read you these words from Paul again. This is from Colossians chapter 1, and this is from verse 24 through verse 26. This is what Paul wrote. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. We got to read that one again. That's worth a pause. And if you have your Bibles, that's one worth underlining. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Did you catch that? The first thing he writes here is that he rejoices in his sufferings, in his incarceration. He found a worthy outlet for his own physical and mental anguish, and it was joy, not some surface joy, not misplaced joy, not a forced joy. It is a joy because he realized that his suffering had purpose, had purpose. And here's the purpose. Paul found joy in his sufferings because they further helped him propel the word of God. His sufferings were the platform for the gospel. 
His sufferings helped him make the word of God more fully known. And that is amazing. It is absolutely unbelievable, but but it's even deeper than that. Paul knew something about suffering that I think we've probably forgot. Something about suffering that changed his perspective, and I'm going to share it with you. Now, this comes from Revelation chapter 6. Now, we're going to skip all the way there to Revelation chapter 6. Let me tell you what's going on here, okay? In Revelation chapter 6, John is seeing the revelation of the seven scroll, seven seals being busted from the scroll that was given to Jesus from God. Now, what this is in Revelation 6 is a vision of the end of all time. And that's what John is seeing. You can read through the opening of the seven seals. This is the opening of the fifth seal, though. And this is what John hears when this fifth seal is broken. It's Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, the Lamb of God opened the fifth seal. John said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer. And you got to look at this one and you got to underline it in your Bibles. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Paul knew here what John discovered in that moment. It's going to blow your mind if you've never heard this, but there is a predetermined amount of suffering for the gospel. There's a predetermined number of deaths for the gospel. It's right in Revelation 6. So listen, every heartache for the gospel, every imprisonment for the gospel, every job loss for the gospel, every reputation loss for the gospel, and every death for the gospel gets us one day closer to the return of Jesus. And Paul found joy in this. In fact, he found joy in two truths about this. One, that his suffering was determined. It wasn't an accident. He didn't happen in the jail. He didn't happen to be in Ephesus at the wrong time. He knew that his suffering was planned by God. And the second truth about this is that he knew that his suffering nudged the world one step closer to the glorious return of Jesus. Listen, the way forward is seeing suffering through this lens. It's the only way to see it. And this is the first way to jettison regret and live the rest of your lives for Jesus. That's the first way. Here's the second way. The way forward means that we live a life without regret. What that means is that it gives value to every single person. Every single person is valuable. Let's look again at Paul's statement. This is the key verse of our series from chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This isn't, by the way, just the point of everything. It's the point of everyone. 
The greatness of this statement, by the way, is found in two pronouns. The first one is we, and the second one is everyone. Let's talk about these two pronouns. The first is we. So in a life without regrets, when we, we find this way forward, we find collaboration in sharing the gospel. Your life is not a solo act. There is a plurality to this purpose. And the way forward is a steady engagement in the life of the church. Now, our church has a staff. I'm a minister here. We have other ministers. But let me, let me just kind of tell you, let you in on a big secret. The staff cannot maximize the potential of a church on our own. We can't do that. The proclamation of the gospel requires you. It requires everyone. The church cannot achieve its full potential with you on the sidelines. You got to get in the game. We need you in the game. That's the first pronoun. And the second one is the pronoun everyone. Now listen, in this word, it's a little disguised here in our English, English translations, but it's a singular pronoun. It could be better said like this. I'm going to show it to you. If we were to translate this word literally, this is how it would sound. Him we proclaim, warning every single person and teaching every single person with all wisdom that we may present every single person mature in Christ. It's no secret here that Paul had a high view of humanity. No one was to be excluded from the proclamation of the gospel. Every single person has a right to know about Jesus. Every person who frustrates you and angers you and defames you is still someone whom God deems worthy to hear the love of Jesus. Listen, we're being seduced a little bit right now by some political opinions to cultivate dissension. You got to resist that. You got to resist it. Everybody needs Jesus. Every single person. And listen, in, in Paul's specific situation that, situation, that included the people who put him in jail. He believed that. This high view of humanity, it crosses color barriers. It crosses ethnic barriers. It crosses international borders. It erases political views. It corrects every mistake that history has ever made. And it gives life. It gives all of life meaning that we toil and we labor and we work to make sure that not, not, not just that every single person knows about Jesus, but believes in Jesus. That is the way forward. Can you imagine for a minute identities not based on subdivisions and bank accounts, but only that we follow Jesus? Can you imagine that, that kind of world? This is the radical world that Paul proposes here, that every single person is identified only as fully mature in Christ. And you know what that means, by the way? Let's kind of take it to its inevitable conclusion. It means that you're going to be a sold-out disciple-maker. That's what Paul was, a sold-out disciple-maker. A sold-out disciple-maker accepts the risks of proclaiming Jesus, whatever they are, whatever they are. Even if they brought Paul death, he was willing to take that risk. Let me show you what one prominent New Testament scholar wrote about Paul, especially in this passage. His name is James Dunn. He wrote a commentary on Colossians. Remarkable New Testament scholar. Look at what he said. I've got a quote for you on the screen. At this point, James Dunn wrote, the line between blind fanaticism and unflinching devotion can become very thin. But this is what makes life worth living, right? 
I mean, to have this kind of passion for the only thing that matters, this is our template. This is the way forward. And here's the third part of this template here. A life without regret in the way forward, it discerns truth from lies. Discerns truth from lies. Paul wrote this. This is the end part of our section of Scripture. This is from Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I say this, I said all this, I write all of this, is what Paul's saying, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's a pretty stunning admission by Paul, that there are, in fact, plausible arguments to the purpose of life. And listen, they're dangerous. They're dangerous to you. They're dangerous to the church. Because plausible arguments are the greatest weapon that the enemy has. Because plausible arguments, they're easy to sell. They, they come in a nice package. They're arguments you've heard, and we've all believed them at one point. But get this, they can all be relegated to one phrase. So everything you've ever heard that is the antithesis of the gospel that can all be boiled down to one little phrase. I'm going to show you what it is. Here it is. You should. You should. You should do. Let me tell you what that, that little phrase implies. It implies that your work and your efforts are required. You should keeps you chasing the next best thing. It keeps you chasing the current idea for a substantial life. Now look, are there good things and right things that require our attention? You better believe it. Absolutely. But when we trust our efforts to affect change, we've lost our way. Because you should do is the greatest lie. Because the solo message of the gospel is not you should, but you can't. That's the message of the gospel. You should or you should do means that Jesus isn't necessary. That his death and his resurrection aren't necessary. You can't, you can't do, is the single admission that Jesus is necessary, that his death and his resurrection is necessary, that they're necessary for your salvation, for your relationships, for your conflicts, for your anxiety, or your bad habits, or for your avoidance of hard things, for a way forward in business or your families, because the gospel encompasses all things. You can't, says that you need Jesus in every aspect, in every detail of your life, but you should. That says you may not need Jesus at all, because you can do it. The way forward, here on the first day of the rest of your life, is to live as if you can't, in complete surrender. This is what makes our proclamation of the gospel have weight. It's not that we say it, but we also live it. We do it. We're here. This is how we communicate with others. Paul lived this way in his conversations. He lived this way in his letters. Paul in jail realized that the goal of his life was to tell people to avoid plausible arguments, to avoid trying to subsidize Jesus's work with their own efforts. And at the moment 
when he thought that his life could be over, he knew that this was the only struggle worth his effort. My prayer for you is to live this way, to talk this way, to see meaning in your suffering, to see every single person as valuable, and to discern truth from lies. May the grace of Jesus be with us.